There's a solitary, humble, wooden structure on a windswept hill in rural New England. To open the door is to engage our minds, our hearts, and our imaginations. In this place, preachers and professors, past and present, come alive as they walk the aisle, ascend the pulpit stairs, and teach. From theology, from history, and from the Word of God, welcome to the Saybrook Meeting House, an audio production of Saybrook Ministries. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume 1, by John Fox, edited by William Byron Forbush. Chapter 3, Persecutions of the Christians in Persia, Part 1. The gospel having spread itself into Persia, the pagan priests who worshipped the sun were greatly alarmed and dreaded the loss of that influence they had hitherto maintained over the people's minds and properties. Hence they thought it expedient to complain to the emperor that the Christians were enemies to the state and held a treasonable correspondence with the Romans, the great enemies of Persia. The emperor, Sepores, being naturally averse to Christianity, easily believed what was said against the Christians and gave orders to persecute them in all parts of his empire. On account of this mandate, many eminent persons in the church and state fell martyrs to the ignorance and ferocity of the pagans. Constantine the Great, being informed of the persecutions in Persia, wrote a long letter to the Persian monarch, in which he recounts the vengeance that had fallen on persecutors, and the great success that had attended those who had refrained from persecuting the Christians. Speaking of his victories over rival emperors of his own time, he said, I subdued these solely by faith in Christ, for which God was my helper, who gave me victory in battle, and made me triumph over my enemies. He hath likewise so enlarged to me the bounds of the Roman Empire, that it extends from the western ocean almost to the uttermost parts of the east. For this domain I neither offered sacrifices to the ancient deities, nor made use of charm or divination, but only offered up prayers to the Almighty God, and followed the cross of Christ. Rejoiced should I be if the throne of Persia found glory also by embracing the Christians, that so you with me, and they with you, may enjoy all happiness. In consequence of this appeal, the persecution ended for the time, but it was renewed in later years when another king succeeded to the throne of Persia. Persecution under the Arian Heretics The author of the Arian Heresy was Arius, a native of Libya and a priest of Alexandria, who, in AD 318, began to publish his errors. He was condemned by a council of Libyan and Egyptian bishops, and that sentence was confirmed by the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325. After the death of Constantine the Great, the Arians found means to ingratiate themselves into the favour of the Emperor Constantinus, his son and successor in the East, and hence a persecution was raised against the Orthodox bishops and clergy. The celebrated Athanasius and other bishops were banished and their sees filled with Arians. In Egypt and Libya, thirty bishops were martyred 
and many other Christians cruelly tormented. And A.D. 386, George the Arian, Bishop of Alexandria, under the authority of the Emperor, began a persecution in that city and its environs, and carried it on with the most infernal severity. He was assisted in his diabolical malice by Cataphonius, governor of Egypt, Sebastian, general of the Egyptian forces, Faustinus, the treasurer, and Heraclius, a Roman officer. The persecutions now raged in such a manner that the clergy were driven from Alexandria, their churches were shut, and the severities practiced by the Arian heretics were as great as those that had been practiced by the pagan idolaters. If a man, accused of being a Christian, made his escape, then his whole family were massacred and his effects confiscated. Persecution under Julian the Apostate This emperor was the son of Julius Constantinus and the nephew of Constantine the Great. He studied the rudiments of grammar under the inspection of Mardonius, a eunuch, and a heathen of Constantinople. His father sent him some time after to Nicomedia to be instructed in the Christian religion by the bishop of Eusebius, his kinsman, but his principles were corrupted by the pernicious doctrines of Echebolius the rhetorician and Maximus the magician. Constantinus, dying the year 361, Julian succeeded him and had no sooner attained the imperial dignity than he renounced Christianity and embraced paganism, which had for some years fallen into great disrepute. Though he restored the idolatrous worship, he made no public edicts against Christianity. He recalled all banished pagans, allowed the free exercise of religion to every sect, but deprived all Christians of officers at court, in the magistracy or in the army. He was chaste, temperate, vigilant, laborious and pious, yet he prohibited any Christian from keeping a school or public seminary of learning, and deprived all the Christian clergy of the privileges granted them by Constantine the Great. Bishop Basil made himself first famous by his opposition to Arianism, which brought upon him the vengeance of the Arian bishop of Constantinople. He equally opposed paganism. The emperor's agents in vain tampered with Basil by means of promises, threats, and racks. He was firm in the faith, and remained in prison to undergo some other sufferings, when the emperor came accidentally to Ancyra. Julian determined to examine Basil himself, when that holy man, being brought before him, the emperor did everything in his power to dissuade him from persevering in the faith. Basil not only continued as firm as ever, but with a prophetic spirit foretold the death of the emperor, and that he should be tormented in the other life. Enraged at what he heard, Julian commanded that the body of Basil should be torn every day in seven different parts, until his skin and flesh were entirely mangled. This inhuman sentence was executed with rigour, and the martyr expired under its severities on June 28, AD 362. Donatus, Bishop of Arezzo, and Hilarinus, a hermit, suffered about the same time. Also Gordian, a Roman magistrate, Artemius, commander-in-chief of the Roman forces in Egypt, being a Christian, was deprived of his commission, then of his estate, and lastly of his head. The persecution raged dreadfully about the latter end of the year 363,
But as many of the particulars have not been handed down to us, it is necessary to remark, in general, that in Palestine many were burnt alive, others were dragged by their feet through the streets naked until they expired, some were scalded to death, many stoned, and great numbers had their brains beaten out with clubs. In Alexandria, innumerable were the martyrs who suffered by the sword, burning, crucifixion, and stoning. In Arethusa, several were ripped open, and corn being put into their bellies, swine were brought to feed therein, which, in devouring the grain, likewise devoured the entrails of the martyrs. And, in Thrace, Emilianus was burnt at a stake, and Domitius murdered in a cave, whither he had fled for refuge. The emperor, Julian the Apostate, died of a wound which he received in his Persian expedition, A.D. 363, and even while expiring uttered the most horrid blasphemies. He was succeeded by Jovian, who restored peace to the church. After the decease of Jovian, Valentinian succeeded to the empire, and associated to himself Valens, who had the command in the east, and was an Arian, and of an unrelenting and persecuting disposition. Persecution of the Christians by the Goths and Vandals Many Scythian Goths, having embraced Christianity about the time of Constantine the Great, the light of the gospel spread itself considerably in Scythia, through the two kings who ruled that country, and the majority of the people continued pagans. Fritigern, king of the West Goths, was an ally to the Romans, but Athanaric, king of the East Goths, was at war with them. The Christians, in the dominions of the former, lived unmolested, but the latter, having been defeated by the Romans, wreaked his vengeance on his Christian subjects, commencing his pagan injunction in the year 370. In religion, the Goths were Arians and called themselves Christians. Therefore they destroyed all the statues and temples of the heathen gods, but did no harm to the orthodox Christian churches. Alaric had all the qualities of a great general. To the wild bravery of the Gothic barbarian, he added the courage and skill of the Roman soldier. He led his forces across the Alps into Italy, and, although driven back for the time, returned afterward with an irresistible force. The Last Roman Triumph After this fortunate victory over the Goths, a triumph, as it was called, was celebrated at Rome. For hundreds of years successful generals had been awarded this great honour on their return from a victorious campaign. Upon such occasions the city was given up for days to the marching of troops laden with spoils and who dragged after them prisoners of war, among whom were often captive kings and conquered generals. This was to be the last Roman triumph, for it celebrated the last Roman victory. Although it had been won by Stilicho, the general, it was the boy emperor, Honorius, who took the credit, entering Rome in the car of victory and driving to the capital amid the shouts of the populace. Afterward, as was customary on such occasions, there were bloody combats in the Colosseum, where gladiators, armed with swords and spears, fought as furiously as if they were on the field of battle. The first part of the bloody entertainment was finished. The bodies of the dead were dragged off with hooks, and the reddened sand covered with a fresh, clean layer. After this had been done, the gates in the wall of the arena were thrown open, 
and a number of tall, well-formed men in the prime of youth and strength came forward. Some carried swords, others three-pronged spears and nets. They marched once around the walls, and stopping before the emperor, held up their weapons at arm's length, and, with one voice, sounded out their greeting. Ave Kaiser, morituri et salutant. Hail Caesar, those about to die salute thee. The combats now began again. The gladiators with nets tried to entangle those with swords, and when they succeeded, mercilessly stabbed their antagonists to death with the three-pronged spear. When a gladiator had wounded his adversary, and had him lying helpless at his feet, he looked up at the eager faces of the spectators, and cried out, Hoc habet! He has it, and awaited the pleasure of the audience to kill or spare. If the spectators held out their hands toward him with thumbs upward, the defeated man was taken away to recover, if possible, from his wounds. But if the fatal signal of thumbs down was given, the conquered was to be slain, and if he showed any reluctance to present his neck for the death blow, there was a scornful shout from the galleries, Rakipa ferum! Receive the steel! Privileged persons among the audience would even descend into the arena to better witness the death agonies of some unusually brave victim before his corpse was dragged out at the death gate. The show went on, many had been slain, and the people, madly excited by the desperate bravery of those who continued to fight, shouted their applause. But suddenly there was an interruption. A rudely clad robed figure appeared for a moment among the audience, and then boldly leaped down into the arena. He was seen to be a man of rough but imposing presence, bareheaded and with sun-browned face. Without hesitating an instant, he advanced upon two gladiators engaged in a life-and-death struggle, and laying his hand upon one of them, sternly reproved him for shedding innocent blood, and then, turning toward the thousands of angry faces ranged around him, called upon them in a solemn, deep-toned voice which resounded through the deep enclosure. These were his words, Do not requite God's mercy in turning away the swords of your enemies by murdering each other. Angry shouts and cries at once drowned his voice, this is no place for preaching. The old customs of Rome must be observed. On, gladiators! Thrusting aside the stranger, the gladiators would have again attacked each other, but the man stood between, holding them apart, trying in vain to be heard. Sedition! Sedition! Down with him! was then the cry, and the gladiators, enraged at the interference of an outsider with their chosen vocation, at once stabbed him to death. Stones, or whatever missiles came to hand, also rained down upon him from the furious people, and thus he perished in the midst of the arena. His dress showed him to be one of the hermits who vowed themselves to a holy life of prayer and self-denial, and who were reverenced by even the thoughtless and combat-loving Romans. The few who knew him told how he had come from the wilds of Asia on a pilgrimage to visit the churches, and keep his Christmas at Rome. They knew he was a holy man, that his name was Telemachus, no more. His spirit had been stirred by the sight of thousands flocking to see men slaughter one another, and in his simple-hearted zeal he had tried to convince them of the cruelty and wickedness of their conduct. He had died, but not in vain. 
His work was accomplished at the moment he was struck down, for the shock of such a death before their eyes turned the hearts of the people. They saw the hideous aspects of the favourite vice to which they had blindly surrendered themselves, and from the day Telemachus fell dead in the Colosseum, no other fight of gladiators was ever held there. Thank you for joining us this week at the Saybrook Meeting House. We hope you've been blessed by today's podcast. Saybrook Ministries' mission is to provide didactic and devotional content from the Christian faith delivered to the saints, recovered and refined by the Protestant Reformation. Be sure to visit saybrookministries.org for continually updated Christian content designed to inspire and invigorate our imagination and intellect. Join us next week for another journey to the Saybrook Meeting House. Until then, may God bless you.